Greetings programs. Hello and welcome to Tronologically Speaking, a movie by minute podcast talking about Disney's 1982 movie Tron. I'm your host Duncan Shields. This is Minute 11 and with me today is my delightful, insightful, generous, ghost-busting guest, co-host Chris Stewart. Welcome Chris. Hey. <laughs> I'm going to call you, uh, what is it, Master D. Master D. How's, hey, it going? Master D. How's it going, Master D? Oh, no problem, Master D. <laughs> That's awesome. Oh, yeah. So what happens in this minute? So summary. Yeah. Dillinger says he's going to shut down the access. And Alan Bradley is a little miffed. Miffed. Access we see the been. downside of uh, centralized computing. Yes. Yes. They have the taps and you are beholden to the flow. Uh, so let's see. Yeah. Dillinger shuts down all access until they find Flynn to be safe. And the MCP drolly suggests... That there's a 68.71% chance that Dillinger is right. <laughs> and Dillinger says, cute. cute. And the MCP says, end of line. And I think that's the first time in the movie that we actually get to see that sweet, sweet end of line. I think possibly, yeah. Yeah. I didn't, uh, my scanning of the previous minutes, they didn't seem to have, they didn't, they didn't tap it in. No. In any of the computers, so that's the... End of line. It's just, uh, yes, the the evil force of the movie has to be definitive. Yeah. Everybody else can just sort of, we assume they walked away from the computer. They don't need to go end of line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's, it's so final. It's very, I don't know. It's almost rude. It's so dismissive. (laughs) Yeah. So final. End of line. I said end of line, sir. I said end of line, sir. Yes. I said end of line. Oh, that's funny. And now I'm picturing like Victorian Tron <laughs> characters. Ten, good day. Twenty, go to ten. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh boy, the big neon top hats and, <laughs> and uh, like the light cycles, but they're like penny farthings. <laughs> uh, so, and then it cuts to Bruce Boxleitner, and this is the first yeah. time we see Bruce Boxleitner. So we're going to talk a little bit about Bruce Boxleitner. Finally, he's Bruce Boxleitner. The, the Bruce Boxleitner. Now, he's been a hardworking actor since way back in 1973. Wow. He was on the Mary Tyler Moore show. Oh. 126 credits on IMDb. Solid. Working every year. Lots of TV, westerns, detective shows, murder mysteries, Tons of uh, like sort of formulaic TV shows and TV movies. Lots of westerns from 1976 to 1981. Was he Scarecrow? He was. He was Scarecrow. He was Scarecrow and Mrs. King. Yeah, he was Scarecrow. Uh, Do you remember the names of the vehicles? This is one of my stupid pop culture uh, trivias that I love to death. Which vehicles? Uh, Oh, was it Scarecrow and Mrs. King or am I thinking of... Scarecrow and Mrs. King had Kate Jackson as a divorced housewife. Right. I'm thinking of some other 80s show that had two Auto boats. At, no, two boats and a helicopter. I thought Knight that was, Rider? No. no. Blue Thunder? No. Uh, Airwolf? Nope. Ignore it. I'll walk. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'll figure it out. It'll be uh, embarrassingly unrelated to uh, even my Rolodexed, unrelated side things. So. Rolodexed through a few there. Uh, in fact, like he, he when he was doing, when he got the script for this, he was filming a Western. He was filming uh, East of Eden, an adaptation of a Steinbeck novel. And he uh, he tells the story in the behind the scenes of getting the script and reading it on set. So he's on the back of a horse, right, filming this western. Gotcha. Big handlebar mustache, spirit glued to his face, reading this script. 
about being inside a computer and light cycles and uh, uh, frisbees like with a glow. And he was like, I have no idea what the heck I'm reading. Hard pass. Ooh. And uh, he sent it back. And then they wanted him. So they hit him up again. And they said, well, uh, Jeff Bridges is involved now. He said yes. And Bruce was like, Jeff Bridges? Well. Well then. Uh, okay. I'm in. And decided to to go for it. He's a great. He's so handsome. Like he's just he's just got a great face. A bit of a cipher. A bit of a blank slate. But he's got this great handsome face. Yeah. You know, like you could you can put him in anything. He's like handsome guy number eighty two. Yes, I figured out my. I was thinking of Riptide with Perry King. Riptide with Perry King. I don't even know if I know that. Uh, well, I don't know if anybody remembers any of these anymore. More. Yeah, for sure. Uh, it's another Stephen Jake, but this is why I got. Not only is there the King, but that's uh, uh, Perry King. Oh my gosh, he could be Bruce Boxley. Eight, oh, that's Perry King. That's yeah. Perry King. There's I've a, seen him. Eighties TV of. guys, and there's a. It's one of those too close to. Eh, so you'll, you'll have to look him up. He just showed me a picture. So you know, a podcast podcast football. But if you look up a picture of Perry King, Perry King. he could be. Uh, Bruce Boxley. It was very much that 80s action primetime things. Scarecrow, Mrs. King, Simon and Simon, all that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, And if anybody's still on the edge of their seat about the dumb trivia, it's that there was two boats in a helicopter called Riptide, named after the show, Ebtide, which was the little boat, and the helicopter, Screaming Mimi. That was the helicopter? That was Screaming Screaming Mimi. Mimi. Anyways, see? I told you. (laughs) Embarrassingly unrelated to the unrelated thing that I sidetracked us on. I like, I've wasted all our time. Yeah, I'm that sorry. Was, that's it. One thing I really remember about the Scarecrow and Mrs. King is a sweet, sweet theme song. What was the theme song? Bam. And then I had this like do 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 because it was the it was like spy thriller music, the spy thriller music. He's the spy, and this is the thriller part. And now here's divorced mother of two <laughs> trying to make ends meet. Look at the funny stuff that happens, and here they come together. Big finish, you know, like it was this reinforcing that motherhood is boring <laughs> and not worth your time. Um, but then they, well, she's living with her with her mom. And her right. two sons. So her mom's, I think, a persnickety 80s mother-in-law yeah, well, yeah. kind of. Well, if you just found yourself a man. I don't remember. I don't know why she's got a southern drawl all of a sudden. She went from like, yeah. 80s, uh, again, going back into my previously mentioned love of uh, synth and synth music and all that. Oh, so many good synthy theme songs. But, but retaining a large amount of that kind of waka chika waka chika 80 or 70s oh. orchestral theme that's, song stuff that's uh that is that particular there's a there's a fantastic clip on youtube of fred astaire dancing at the oscars yeah when he's like 77 or yeah. something like that so it was like 84 85 or maybe earlier than that 81 and uh they, they're like hey, do you want to do a little dance for us? And he's like, no, I couldn't possibly. And then like walks over to the middle of the stage and the orchestra starts up. Right. And he does, uh, uh, you know, of course, an astounding dance number at the age of 77. But the music is so waka chicka waka chicka. <laughs> yep. And it's appalling. I can't, I, I, I just get, I break out in hives when I hear that music. I can't. Yeah, wind, brass, strings, couple kettle drums, the percussionist, and then you had to start throwing in a guy with mutton chops <laughs> on his little rhythm guitar. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, 
Anyways. Uh, yeah, he played Christian Slater's dad in 1990's, uh, 1992's Cuffs. Yeah. I loved Cuffs. I, I haven't thought, seen that in ages. I thought Cuffs had a dog in it, but I no. think I was getting that mixed up with uh, the Tom Hanks K-9 movie. Turner, Turner and Hooch? Turner and Hooch, yeah. No, Cuffs is... L- well, there was K-9 with Jim Belushi. Yeah. As there was, a, there was a lot of... There was a dog, dog and cop buddy. movie. <laughs> yeah. I think Cuffs came out in that same cluster, and so I assume that Cuffs But it's not. Had... It's about his girlfriend has a... a secret or something like that like she's not who she's supposed to be his brother gets killed and so he ends up taking his place on the force something like that yeah yeah but mean to go back and see that one because i do remember it anyway and i'm not a heathers guy so there you go and then of course after that oh you know what movie well i mean this isn't the question slater minute but uh (laughs) that pirate radio station one that he did pump up the volume Pump up the volume i didn't see that until about i think seven years ago yeah, because I was not a fan of Christian Slater at the time. Right, it's a fantastic film. It's a good movie. It's a really good little. Film. My only disappointment is that it does not have that uh, Mars song in it. So, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Which is on my you know top ten songs you could listen to repeatedly forever. So. I could, yeah, I could listen to that on a ten hour loop. It's like uh, that Romeo is bleeding with Gary Oldman. There not, you go. Not once do they play Romeo is bleeding no, by Tom Waits. Well. Maybe there's a few movies like that where they come up with the title and then can't secure the rights, but they're halfway through production and they're like, well, we're going with it. Yeah, so the Bruce Boxleitner, what I like is that it's, uh, he's too handsome. Nobody's going to buy that he's a computer nerd. Put glasses on him. Uh, yeah. So. Same with Cindy. Same, same, same thing with. with same with Cindy Morgan. <laughs> exactly. Dreamy, dreamy Cindy Morgan. Oh, no, she's got glasses. Oh, she's a she's a computer programmer. Uh, it turns into that WKRP uh, Bailey yeah, uh, thing. Yeah, Bailey. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. In a and hell then, of a cubicle farm. Yeah, well, and then also, well, Bruce, sticking on Bruce Boxleitner, then he went on into Babylon, oh, sorry. Babylon 5. Yes. Which I have still not seen, <sighs> but I hear is great. It is great. When it aired, when it first aired, I couldn't get past the first couple episodes. Uh, it remains a bit of a sore spot that they have never improved what they released. The DVDs are pretty good, I think. But what do you mean, like remastered, like a 4K remaster or something? Yeah, or they what? never did anything like that. There's some reason. Michael J. Straczynski talks about it on Twitter all the time because people keep asking, "When are we gonna have this or whatever?" Or, yeah. or it's just come out on Hulu recently or something, or one of the American streaming. We don't have it here, but people are like, "Oh, it looks really muddy." And he's like, "Yeah, they just they're they using just some the old digitized the it's VHS. Just, it's or... awful." Yeah, uh, but even then, it is still worth watching. I really got to get in there. It is a, um, how do I put this? The best way to describe it is if people took some elements of Star Wars yeah, in terms of what alien races are like, which means not just bumpy foreheads, like sure. they really. Um, and proper, m- proper hammerheads. Yeah. And then married it to the episodic uh, with large arc approach of Star Trek. Nice. Particularly Star Trek The Next Generation. Yeah. And then jam them all together. And you end up with this really Star Wars rich and deep universe and all that of lush alien races and people with alien races with alien motives and all this and then uh yeah kind of this crew that you love sort of thing of of star trek and all that it's 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 well worth it there's a lot to it it'll take you a long time to get through it i would recommend it that's one of the reasons why i haven't yet is because there's a lot to it and accessibility like i know that 
friends of mine have the videotapes still right. or something like that. But other than that, I'm like, how do I why watch you, this? Okay, so why are you winking at me? You want me to <laughs> you want me to copy my DVDs? Is that what you're saying? If it came out, just on say the, it. Just uh, say it. it is. I have it. I oh, have well, no, I would love a I would love a lens because I I feel like it's a glaring hole in my uh, in my cinematic. It's really great. It's really really great history. Um, and he's actually the biggest part of it because they it started the first season had a commander. And Straczynski had to do some hustle and math to figure out how to move on without him because and but keep the because he they started uh like a canonical arc a big story with one character and one season was enough to lock him into this thing and then he didn't want to be there anymore and left and they had to he had to do some real some real character math, math to get Box Lightner in to fill a, a void act out a part and still when they got to the end bring the other guy back and and both of them have big fi- final uh, uh wrap up roles at the end of oh, it. Oh, so. cool, right on. Anyways, sorry. That's okay. Now he uh he did come he came back. Oh, and for, it has Peter Jurassic from Yeah, and it has Tron Peter it Jurassic. It has Crom Crom as well. Crom and Tron. There you go. And uh they he also reply, reprised his uh his role in Legacy. He came back for Legacy. Yeah. And he starred in all the shorts. That were used That's to like right. promote legacy. Yeah, and uh, yeah, he seems like a very game guy. For, very for game. F- as long as he likes it, he's in. He's like, "Yep, sign me up. I'm doing." It. He's uh, he strikes me as somebody who's like, "Hey, a job, fantastic." Yeah, you know, like and I love working, love working, yeah. and like I said, as evidenced by Babylon Five, if he enjoys the people and enjoys the material, bend over backwards. So. Yeah, he'll be he'll be there for he'll you. Be there. Yeah, as evidenced by Tron Legacy, and yeah, well, part of it too is I think a lot of these actors sometimes he, I think he's fine with it because he when you never reach when you reach celebrity level, but you don't turn into weird global super yeah, celebrity, yeah. bizarre, huge, bizarre. If you turn into if if you're Leonard Nimoy and you do a Spock, you kind of resent it after a while. If you're Bill Murray and you do all this other stuff, and Razor's Edge was your baby. You kind of resent Ghostbusters for a while, and they then later on in life go, "Oh, this is a big part of what people will remember me for. I should soften up on it." Yeah. Whereas he, right out the gate, Tron, yes, Babylon Five, love it. I'll, I'll see you at the convention. Want yeah, me to sign yeah. something? I'm there. Yeah, so. yeah. Uh, bless him. That's good. I'm glad he's. I'm glad he's like that. Now his character, Alan Bradley, is named after Alan Kay. Oh. Um, who was best known for his pioneering work on object-oriented programming and window graphical user interface design. Well, wow. so a lot of we, what we know today as computers yeah. is from uh, is from Alan Kay, and he's still alive. Well, wow. still kicking around. He's the president of the Viewpoints Research Institute and an adjunct professor of computer science at the University of California, Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. He is also on the advisory board of TTI Vanguard. And until mid 2005, he was a senior fellow at HP Labs, a visiting professor at Kyoto University and an adjunct professor at MIT. There you go. And he's also a professional, a former professional jazz guitarist, composer, theatrical <laughs> designer, and amateur amateur classical pipe organist. <sighs> what an underachiever! I know. I'm always this mad guy, at those guys. Do something with your life, Alan Kay. Jeez. It's like when you run into actors you really like, and then you find out, oh, you're a concert level pianist while you're at <laughs> it. Great. It's like Gates McFadden. Yeah. Right. She was a puppeteer, puppeteer. on Labyrinth. I'm like, what? What is? Who are you? You know, like, that's so amazing. I love it. I love it when you find a, a polymath who happens to be famous for, like, one-eighth of their talents. Exactly. Right? Oh, just, Is that, we got to just stick with those people and hope that they, uh, you know, 
propel their genes forward into the future. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so he's eating some popcorn in his cubicle. Air, air popped? Air popped popcorn, which I think would probably be a, a bad idea, I imagine. Uh, the, the smell of popcorn permeates across an office. Yeah. And everybody would want some. And I think it's a perk that he's probably allowed to have as a star, a star programmer within well, certainly the, the guy cube, the one cubicle over is. Hey, can I have some of your popcorn? popcorn? That's yeah, the, sure. And that's Dan Shore. Is it? Yeah, that's Dan Shore. That's actually Dan Shore. He's so small. I never noticed. Yeah. Like it's, he's, it's not, there's no close up of him. No. So that's. He's got the curly hair and the glasses and it's a far, it's a wide shot, but that's, uh, that's Dan Shore. Uh, so Ram is his, his program. Yeah. So the actuarial program. Which was in the, like, which is, you know, because he's in a cell, it's assumed that he was kidnapped. But assuming that he is actually Dan Shore's program, then, yeah, he's like the cubicle mate of, uh, yeah, of, of he's, Alan Bradley. He's, he's in the quote unquote cell next to Alan. Yeah. And just, he's, just like Tron and Ram are just like Tron. Oh, yeah. Next to one another just in the like thing. One thing. Yeah. So that's funny. And he's, uh, what's he doing? Yeah. So he's eating some popcorn. And he's doing some of that sweet, sweet computer interface. Yes. Some of that, hey, MCP, seek out my program. Enter. Enter. <laughs> and, yeah, and then it turns out, you're locked out. And he has to do, I have level seven. Yeah, so he says, request master control program, release Tron JA. Zero, zero. Three, zero, seven, oh, two, zero. I have, pri- I have priority access seven. and uh, And then the report back is... September 22nd, 1832, 21 p.m. Oh, it's military time, but they still felt the need to put p.m. on the, on the end. <laughs> That's funny. Your access suspended. Please report to Dillinger immediately. Authorization, master control program. End of line. End of line. So we get another end of line. Prom, prom. Prom, prom. And then he gets mad. He gets mad. He grabs jumps his, up. Grabs his jacket in a huff. And a fantastic use of eight cubicles. Where a mat shot then turns it into a warehouse, an amazing farm mat painting. Of, yeah, it's so it's so good. It's extending almost to infinity inside the office building. Uh, yeah, again, giving that nice sense of the the sprawling grid inside yeah. the computers yeah, too. It's very very reminiscent. Like there's so many shots in this movie that are this is the grid and this is the real world. Aren't they similar? Like here's the points of light in a nighttime yeah. city. Here's the brake lights on a car. Aren't they similar to a recognizer and the points of light in the grid? And this is the same. And they no sell different. us on the idea that it's a, an office full of people. Yeah. It's actually kind of a missed thing. They put Dan Shore in. And the thing that's missing is we see cu- the one thing we see movies in the 70s and 80s that are cubicle farming is uh, newspapers. Yeah. And they like, sell uh, it by. It? The apartment. What's his face? Billy Wilder. The The apartment. Uh, there's a bit right. where is it the apartment? There's a bit where there's a there's like a there's an office. Yeah, or maybe you'll, yeah. Well, no, no. Go ahead. They, there's a shot of an office with desks, a lot like this one. Yeah, with desks extending to the horizon in this massive, massive, massive floor. But they didn't do it with a matte painting. They did it with forced perspective, where the desks in the back actually have uh, tiny dwarves and little people and children sitting at them what? on little tiny desks and then the, the desks up front well that's like one way to size. the one thing this thing is missing that i was watching it would would have been because uh, uh, newspaper offices and all that you have ringing phones the sound of typewriters there you go yeah and some murmuring and you're like this place is filled with busy people yeah in this one 
Unless I tuned it out, I don't recall there being any... Well, it's 6 p.m., right? Okay. So, that's true. There you go. You did say that it was... Yeah. Yeah. So, presumably... Most people are gone by that The grinders and the star players are still there. Gotcha. Okay. That makes more sense. It's mostly empty. Although, to be honest, it... It's not been my experience of working <laughs> in an office like that. Usually no. there's people there till yeah. And, and it's but. weird because you make it feel like it's a big company and then don't sell it that there's a lot of people. Like it's, But it's almost like they're, they're too – yeah, because if you had made it like five and then you go – and then we put in some sounds of people working because that's kind of the last minute people. He then gets upstairs and he's sitting in an office staring at – you know, nine o'clock LA time, dark yeah. outside, right? And LA does not get that dark at six o'clock well, in the evening, the any thing. time of year. As I think this is probably more realistically like nine thirty or something. Yeah, like it says, it says eighteen thirty-two in that in that in that request. But yeah, it's it wouldn't be that deserted at six thirty. Friends from LA when they come up here to visit, and we're not that far inside Canada. Most of Canada lives just inside the border. Yeah, yeah. They come up from LA, which in my mind, not terribly far away, because there's. You know, Mexico and Central America and South America to go before. You know, the equator is way down. Yeah. But just that slight difference in latitude between uh, L.A. and us up here, when they come up in the wintertime, they are shocked Yeah, by the, the, the light earlier in the evening that in L.A. would still be kind of sun's up but setting sort yeah, of thing. Yeah, We're yeah. like darkness. And That's they're like, what is wrong? Dark. Yeah, like go further north. <laughs> exactly. Check that out. <laughs> Six months of night. Go live in Alaska. Anyways, yeah. that was a, 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 a poet friend of mine. He used to live up in Yellowknife, and he was talking about how his uh, he took a girl out on a date, and the 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 father said, you know, have her back before sundown, and he he was like, I will, but conceivably, I could keep her for the next four months. Or not keeper, but I don't have like there, there yeah, is exactly. there's no sundown for the next little point while. of order. Point of order. What do you mean? The sun dips close to the horizon, but it doesn't go down. Are for you literal or figurative? Yeah. Help me out here. Uh, so let's see. Yeah, so we get that amazing matte painting, and at that point, matte painting was almost the same as it was for like seventy or sixty years before Tron. It, yeah. it was a technology that hadn't really really changed. Big glass plate. Yeah. Uh, shot, like I said, so. I would guess, based on all the ones I've seen, I've never seen one that is less than 12 feet across. Yeah, huge. Minimum six feet high. And they need to be that way. To get the detail. Yeah. Again, this go, we actually made this point way back when, when we were talking about size stuff. You do a matte painting that size and then shoot it down to 35 millimeter. All of a sudden, stuff that if you go look at it, you're like, this is kind of sloppy slash impressionistic right there's a fuzziness to the details yeah all of a sudden when it comes together crunched into a 35 millimeter shot all of a sudden you're like wow that is spot on and there's some matte paintings that look a little ropey later on but there's still a whole bunch that i'm like that's that's a matte painting too there's still yeah there's still the the good matte paintings you don't notice yeah but there's still a lot like uh strange brew Elsinore Fury <laughs> yeah. up on the hill is serviceable, but that's kind of on the lower end of the matte painting. Yeah, for sure. Sort of thing. Versus um, the stormtroopers uh, in the shuttle bay when Vader lands yeah. on the Death Star. Yeah. Not guys. Not guys. Matte painting. Matte painting. And it looks so good. So real. Yeah. Um, and then we see a little few personal touches inside each cubicle. 
which is nice. The guy, yeah. the guy across from Tron has a globe. Yep. And uh, Alan's got some Polaroids and uh, a thing for a, Japan. A picture, yeah, a picture of like a Japanese garden. Yeah. And he's got a. It's something that we don't see till a later minute, but they mention it in the novel. He's got a Klaatu Barada Nikto. It's in the movie. Yeah, it's in the movie in a later minute. In this minute, yeah. Oh, sorry. It, but I, but I, later I, on, you see Gort Klaatu Barada Nikto mm-hmm. banner hanging there, which is a classic. You know, uh, the day the earth stood still. The day the earth stood yeah. still. Yeah, that was the speaking of talking to computers. Yeah, that was the verbal command to tell the robot to stop vaporizing stop, army soldiers. Stop it! Stop it! <laughs> and uh, so Gort, yeah, bad, bad robot. Dan Shore gets helps himself throw a little popcorn. It's a nice touch. I didn't realize it was Dan Shore. Yeah, it was really great. I didn't realize that either. I thought it was just some rando. Yeah. But it's uh, like, why not? Well, makes sense. Right? You've got him. This goes way back to when you first uh, were kind enough to invite me on. We were talking about the level of thought that went into this. Yeah. That makes it feel great, and you just don't notice it at first. You kind of got to stare at this movie over and over before you go, oh, yeah, it makes sense to make you know Dan Shore yeah. a, sell par- uh, you know, a partner next to him. And then the suggestion that there's a mirroring of cubicles versus cells and all that. Like They sat down and went... Here's our, idea, Here's our idea visually in the thing. And we just, <laughs> it takes us 30 years to go. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Thought went into this. Hey. It was levels. I'd be interested to, I don't know if there's any way to study it, but I'd be interested to try to see how much movies that do this thing are why they end up resonating beyond their time. Like Blade Runner bounced off of everybody including roger ebert but there's something about the design thought the world building well the symbolism that never really got covered because they're all looking at plot and acting and all this sort of thing i want to whenever i hear of a movie that flopped and then initially went on to be bigger and find its place in the group public consciousness it is usually Tron, Blade Runner, or The Thing. Yeah. And I want to hear some examples of that or find some examples of that that are not the summer of 1982. Yeah. Because there's, there's probably more. I think half of the problem of films that flopped in the summer of 1982 was just the concentrated glut of winners that came out within five weeks of each other. Mm, interesting. You know, you had Poltergeist, Star Trek II, Conan, The Road Warrior. Yeah. Tron, Blade, uh, Blade Runner, uh, did I say Star Trek Two already? No. E.T., Star Trek Two. Like, it's ridiculous. Like, yeah. the, that year had a lot of big films, but the fact that all these films came out right next door to each other at a time when there wasn't a whole lot of multiplexes kicking around, like, people had to make a choice. Yeah. And I think these... Theaters had... Uh, one to two screens is yeah. what it was. So these three or four films fell through the cracks. Yeah. And they didn't flop because nobody got them, right? They flopped because there was an embarrassment of choice at the time. Yeah. And I think if those were the only three or four movies that had come out that summer, we wouldn't be talking about why they flopped. They would have been huge. Yeah. So I think there's a there's a situational thing that happened there. It wasn't like that we're only getting them now. It's that because they... There's a little bit a, to the of that, a, a marketing fail. So I mean, I think that's, but I think that's a bigger part of it than people give credit to. Interesting. That's would be a lot easier to to look into. 
in terms of screens it was on and all that. That's why I want to. I want to. Box um, Office Mojo would probably help with that. They might have the information of how many screens it was on, but you can't discount that if Roger Ebert says yeah. Blade Runner sucks, no matter how many screens it that's was a, in, that a, will minimize the number that's as a well. Death knell right there. But I, I wonder. I just really want to find examples of films that flopped at first and are now acknowledged as classics that didn't come out in the summer of 1982. Interesting. Well, I mean, the easy one is Wizard of Oz. Did it flop at the time? Oh, yeah, it was. The director of Wizard of Oz stopped working on The Wizard of Oz to go be the director on Gone with the Wind. Yeah, Wizard of Oz, um, I seem to recall that. Yeah, best uh, director two years in a row, I think. What's his name? Jimmy Stewart's Christmas um, oh, It's a Wonderful Life. Did that not do too well? Didn't do too great. Okay. But both those benefited from... Maybe it's not Wizard of Oz. Maybe I'm conflating the two. One of them didn't do great, but television is what, yeah, what brought it back. I think that's a wonderful life. Well, definitely a wonderful life. I don't know about Wizard of Oz, but Wizard of Oz was a hit. What am I thinking of? I Ignore think it was me. A, I'm the worst guest ever. <laughs> yeah, you know, E.T. not very well received when it first came out. Found a lot of success in the home video market. What? What are you talking about? <laughs> not, it set records. Um, yeah, so, and then Dillinger tracks Alan's progress through the building on black and white security camera feeds on the MCP, his massive obscene executive desk. And that's, oh. uh, and that's, uh, that's the end of the minute as we come up to it. Shawshank Redemption. I'm not tuning you out. I'm just yeah. multitasking that I've gone to the phone. Shawshank Redemption was, is regarded as a flop that we now. That's a great example. I'd That's have to dig in example. more because it's Roger Ebert gave a four out of four. It's IMDb and Rotten Tomato scores are high, and I think it was up for Oscars. But then the crazy part is that if it is, and it's a Frank Darabont movie for the love of God. Yeah. So there's a there's a good example of did it suck then at the box office? Why is it on this list? Stephen King adaptation yeah. maybe like I think Stephen one, King, but not a horror. One thing that happened. This is. Uh, this is a story I tell a lot. I probably maybe even told it already. But Empire Magazine, mm-hmm. uh, British UK film magazine, they, another one. Yep. Yeah, they put out a poll at the end of uh, 1999, saying, you know, send in your favorite film of the last millennium, right? And then we will post a top three of the best films of the millennium, a top a top ten of the best films of the millennium for the turn of the century. And so these were people sending in their their ideas. So number one was a tie between Star Wars Empire and Revenge of the Jedi, mm-hmm. Return of the Jedi. Number two was a, a, a tie between Godfather 1 and 2. Oh. But number three was Shawshank Redemption. Interesting. And they I'm, didn't have a multiple choice list that you could pick from. It was like to decide on their own. Send, to, in the, send in the film that you thought was the best. Which is a good way to do it when for those is, open ones. For those yeah. open ones. And I think it's, it, it's, not, it's still not the best way to poll people, but that, yeah. it's best of the version. But I think it was a shock to a lot of people because I think a lot of people think, well, I know Shawshank Redemption is my favorite movie because yeah. it speaks to me. But I had no idea that everybody else felt the same way. And I'm looking at Box Office Mojo. It is a flop. Yeah. A production budget of $25 million, It's domestic uh, total gross, twenty-eight, just over $28 million. Gosh. Well, I mean, it was on, uh, I think I saw it on Netflix not even two weeks ago. I just thought I'd fire it up, and it's still fantastic. Anyway. Go. Sorry, that's, everybody. That's but... a Shawshank for you. Uh, so when we talk about the novel and screenplay differences. Yes. Please. I've been enjoying these because I never thought to go to my novelization. 
in the novel, um, they describe Alan Bradley's cubicle as very messy mm. in much the same way that they describe uh, Flynn's apartment as filled with uh, Chinese food containers right. and empty pizza boxes that we don't really see in the movie. No. Uh, in the novel, uh, yeah, Alan Bradley's cubicle is a, a, a slovenly mess that has half-eaten <laughs> egg salad sandwiches resting on the computer and a cold <laughs> half-full cup of coffee kicking Ooh. around there's something about there's some sort of subtext about uh programmers in this because they make a crack later on with laurie that uh does she still leave her laundry lying around on the floor yeah yeah, yeah. there's, there's a, all programmers are are above worldly things such as <laughs> cleaning up their food garbage and picking up their laundry i think there's sort of a there's a i mean i know there's a not a, a f- I mean, I know it's a cliche, but I think there's like an element of truth to being so focused on something that, that well, yeah. you're like, oh, has it been eight hours? Oh, that's probably cold now. I should probably throw that out. Like, you know, yeah. I think there's a there's a there's a tuning out reality because you're focused on a problem. Be be you, whatever, like yeah. whatever you're onto. It's not restricted to coders. But. but the first company I worked at here was Radical Entertainment, and when they moved offices, a half drunk container of orange juice like a bottle of sunrise <laughs> was found sitting behind a desk. It had got misplaced back there. Uh, and I heard that they raised pocket change to bet a guy if he'd drink it. And he did. <laughs> oh, no way. <laughs> oh. So, uh, may he yeah. rest in peace. No, he's still alive. <laughs> he's not in games anymore, but I don't think it's related to the orange <laughs> juice. So, <laughs> Aches. Anyways, yeah, there's a little bit to the uh, to that maybe. <clears throat> yeah, he's uh, allergic to citrus now. And then in the screenplay, uh, Alan Bradley has a Shogun Warrior on the top of his monitor. Aha! Which then goes to the. <laughs> we can't find a Shogun Warrior. Can we put a picture of a Japanese garden behind him? <laughs> yes, do that. Oh, there you go. Yeah, I guess there's a correlation there for sure. Um, and the guy, there's interviews. Uh, behind the scenes with some of the special effects guys and he has a huge collection of uh, toys and Shogun Warriors behind him when he's given the behind the scenes interviews so oh, there you go so I think uh, so maybe, a little bit of uh, uh, Mary suing himself he wanted to slip one of his toys <laughs> into the although interestingly enough that doesn't mesh very well with the concept of being slightly slovenly so they, it would go a long way to explaining why they may have cleaned him up a little bit. It's a very neat office. And, well, yeah, for sure. Eh. Yeah, it's a Hollywood movie. You Complete supposition your... on my part, but anyway. That brings us to the end of the minute. Oh, yeah. Well, then. It's the end of minute 11. Chugging right along. Chugging right along. <laughs> Where can people find more of you if they want to hear more of you? I stop at the Port Booty Starbucks next to the IGA <laughs> <laughs> most Thursdays. Uh, no, it's uh, social media is easiest. Uh, I do recommend uh, if I if people uh, don't mind check out the podcast. So yeah. whatever your fave is, iTunes, Stitcher, uh, what have you, uh, the Ghostbusters interdimensional crossrip. Uh, if you get lost, go to Twitter and look for the crossrip. It's an easy way for it. Uh, and then you know the games I make. If you want to go to Steam and look for Kerberos, K E R B E R O S Productions dot com. We uh, we like to make. Uh, Kind of old school strategy games that, uh, or tactical type games that'll keep you on your toes. And uh, if you want to get in touch with us, check out more at tronologicallyspeaking.com. Drop us a line on Twitter at tronologicallyspeaking. 
Send us an email at tronologicallyspeaking at gmail.com or join us on Facebook at Tronologically Speaking, the Tron Minute by Minute listeners page. I think in the future I'm going to start recording this so I can just play it. I think it's a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> Although it's kind of fun to say it every time and try to do it a little bit different. Well, there you go. In the uh, fifth element, fifth element minute right. by minute podcast, at the end, he's always like, you can find us at this. Give us a follow, why don't you? And at the end, it was like, uh, by, the, by the time it had been done uh, 500 times, he was just like, hey, you can find us at this. <laughs> Give us a follow, why don't you? So he, just kept, <laughs> he just kept getting more and more abstract and, and That's strange, awesome. which was uh, which was always <laughs> worth a chuckle, I thought. Um, special thanks to the Star Wars Minute. Uh, Strat it at all. Go on over to moviesbyminute.com and see if your favorite movie's there. And if you don't find it, consider starting up a podcast yourself. Whether you are a seasoned veteran or a noob like me, then um, yeah, it's always it's worth doing. It's a lot of fun. Do you want to say uh, end of line? Has anybody ever said no so far? No. Oh, well. If you'd rather not. We no, we can do it. Yeah? We yeah. Do it. Sure. Okay. One, two, three. End, end of, of line. line. Boop, 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 boop.